Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening, for gathering together uh, this family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for inspiring the Word of God. Thank you for recording it and propagating it throughout human history so that folks like us can still depend on it uh, for as the very sustenance of life itself. Thank you for revealing to us the abundance of grace that you continue to pour out on, onto our laps. And as your word says, it overflows even at some point into the laps of others. And what a blessing that is to realize that we are in the path of or even conduits of your grace and your love. May our light shine so the world can see us even though we're just a small church here in North Dighton, Massachusetts, may we never become familiar with our impact, not just in our community, but also worldwide. Thank you for the privilege, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work, our Lord and Savior on the cross, to open up that gate, to cancel out that debt. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 16. Uh, just a few points worth reviewing from Tuesday, uh, Tuesday's lessons before we press on back to the apostles proper up here on the board. <clears throat> this was an interesting thing that came out. On Tuesday, John 10:3, to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And of course, he's speaking about himself. He is the great shepherd, of course. And this came out on Tuesday that he calls each sheep by name and then leads them out. And we ought to pause on that and not just read over it by name in John 10.3 means that Jesus, our great shepherd, as he's called in Hebrews 13.20, has called every individual personally. Our calling is not a group calling. It is absolutely precise based on the heart of the individual. So this is not a group calling. It has never been a group calling, even though the Old Testament treats Israel as a people, and uh, it often speaks about the salvation of a people. Uh, nonetheless, uh, salvation has always been an individual issue, at least as far as it is concerning eternal life. So by name means that Jesus, our great shepherd, has called every individual personally our calling is not a group calling. It is absolutely precise based on the heart of the individual. This means that for someone looking to, let's say, shoehorn themselves in, into heaven through their grandmother's faith, let's say, well, that's not going to work because he calls each by name. He doesn't say, Grandma, and then your brood, come along with you. Your faith was so great, all these kids and grandkids of yours get to come along with you. It doesn't work like that. Jesus calls those. Now, I did a little analysis on this um, for you to sort of drive some of this home. Jesus calls those whom his Father has given him. That's what Scripture tells us. He calls those whom the Father has given him to call. We see this in the midst of Jesus' prayer. Go to John 17, 6. John 17, 6. <clears throat> Again, the principle being that Jesus calls those whom his Father has given him. John 17, 6. Remember, Jesus was a slave to the Father's will. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So you see the dynamic there, hopefully, that Jesus was given names, and he calls them each by name. 
This is analogous, uh, I was thinking about this just to help. This is analogous to, say, a graduation ceremony that takes place, and so many take place across the U.S. in May, June, each year. The person that is announcing each individual's name was given a list from someone presumably with the authority to sign a student's graduation papers. So whoever's, you know, sort of uh, running the show from the podium there has been given a list of graduates and uh, presumably they, the list includes people who some authority has granted graduation to. The person calling each student up to receive their diploma calls them, how? By name. That's why it takes like 17 hours. But he calls each one by name based on the fact that their individual credentials have been scrutinized already. This is analogous to the fact that God sees the heart of man. And based on that, chose and elected each believer from eternity past. Which means that the very book of life, the, the book with the list of names, uh, existed before human history even began even before Jesus was incarnate. And in keeping with our analogy, God the Father has given Jesus Christ, His Son, this list of names in that book. And as a servant of His Father's will, Jesus, the Great Shepherd, calls each one of the sheep on the list. That's how it works. Again, this is what Jesus meant when He said, he calls his sheep by name up here in the board. By name means that Jesus, our great shepherd, has called every individual personally. Our calling is not a group calling. It is absolutely precise based on the heart of the individual. There's one other principle I'd like to take a moment to speak about since it came up in a really good conversation that I had with someone this past week. And it had to do with, you know, who does Jesus call? And how does that calling come about? Um, this person had been faced with trying to evangelize a homosexual. And two things existed that precipitated a question in this person's soul. And so we talked at length about it. I'm just sharing some of it with you. One, this person was a professed homosexual. Two, this person was humble enough to listen to the gospel. They were, they were homosexual, professed so, but they were humble enough to listen to the gospel. So the question was something like this, and we just sort of threw it out on the table because, you know, that's what folks like us do. We just sort of throw things out on the table. If a homosexual doesn't repent of their sinful lifestyle, and theologically repentance precedes faith in Christ, then can they be saved? This is one of those questions that Satan likes to drum up because he knows that there are several presuppositions that are embedded into this question that are intrinsically bad. Presuppositions. I taught at length about that, asking the wrong questions. You remember that? Satan loves it when we ask bad questions because he gets us to accept certain presuppositions that aren't even true or are bad themselves. So the question was, you know, if a homosexual doesn't repent of their sinful lifestyle and theologically speaking, repentance precedes saving faith, then can they be saved? So, for example, does this homosexual believe that homosexuality is a sin? Now we're getting closer. Now we're getting closer to the truth of the subject. Does this homosexual believe that homosexuality is a sin? What if this evangelist uh, were you and you gave them, say, go to Leviticus 18.22, so what if, suppose you're this evangelist in this situation where you've got a professed homosexual, but they're standing in front of you listening humbly about the gospel. 
Leviticus 18.22. So suppose you happen to read this to them. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Okay, that's what we call clearly stated doctrine, right? Clearly stated theology. Uh, there's no doubt that homosexuality is a sin. But here's the nuance regarding repentance. In order to repent from it, a person must believe that homosexuality is a sin, which means that they must have faith in the likes of Leviticus 18.22. Faith is a gift from God. And maybe at this point in their lives, God hasn't given them faith on this particular subject just yet. There's a lot of people that, lead, that read a lot of Scripture that don't believe it, in other words. There's a lot of Scripture that exists that people don't have faith in, even though they've seen it in print. So faith is a gift from God. Last time I checked. So maybe this person doesn't have faith yet. The point. A person can't and won't repent from something that they have not been convicted of yet by faith. Does that make sense? How could they? They're not convicted of it yet. They don't have faith that it's even true. So, with God, all things are possible. Are we to postulate that a person who doesn't repent of something like homosexuality is, quote, unsavable? May it never be. May it never be. Are we to postulate that a person who doesn't repent of something like homosexuality is now unsavable? May it never be. If we ever begin an evangelistic effort with something like, you can't be saved until you repent of this here certain sin, then we ought to stop evangelizing. For we have become like a Pharisee, judges. Just remember, Jesus was surrounded by prostitutes and tax collectors who were essentially thieves, who consistently robbed and overcharged and overtaxed individuals for their own personal benefit. And Jesus was surrounded by these people. And remember what he said to the woman caught in adultery. Go to John 8, 11. John 8, 11. Remember what he said to the woman caught in adultery. John 8, 11. This was after he drew in the sand, after all the judgmental individuals had gone away. He said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. You know the scene. And they all left. And he said, and she, he said, did no one stick around? She said, no one, Lord. And he said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. That was his guidance to this sinner. He would have known that she was an adulteress. But he didn't say you're not savable. <laughs> if anything, that was the reason why we that's that's reason why we need a savior is because we're sinners. So sin no more appear on the board, more literally, leave your life of sin. Why? Because I love you. Because that stuff's bad for you. That's my guidance to you. Leave that behind. Whatever your sin is, leave it behind. 
Jesus, though fully aware of the sins of his sheep, those whom his father has him call, a la John 10.3, never stated that a particular sin precluded true, soulish repentance, rendering that person unsavable somehow, except one. We'll get to it, of course. Again, sin no more, more literally. Leave your life of sin. Jesus, though fully aware of the sins of his sheep, those whom his Father has him call, never stated that a particular sin precluded true, soulish repentance, rendering that person unsavable somehow. Go to Mark 2.13. Mark 2.13. And this is good because I'm sure some of you probably have friends that are homosexuals. I don't know. Or relatives. What are you supposed to do? Lynch them? What are you supposed to do? Tell them, oh, you're, you're, you're unsavable? You would think the way some people think. Funny. Mark 2.13. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, Mark 2.14, as he passed by, he saw, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Isn't that funny? The crook gets up and follows him. That's more than most religious people will do. You know the ones who are judging the crook? You know the ones who are saying you're unsavable because you're this kind of a sinner? <laughs> and it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? You see their nose up in the air. In hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners. You know what a homosexual is? A sinner. You know what a drunk is? A sinner. You know what an abuser is? A sinner. You know what a liar is? A thief. A tax evader. They're all sinners. You know what a judger is? A sinner. That's the whole point. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, borrowing from John 8.11, where he says, From now on, sin no more. Up on the board, sin no more. Leave your life of sin. He was fully aware of the sins of his sheep. Never stated, though, that a particular sin precluded true soulless repentance rendering a person unsavable somehow. So to answer the original question on the table, which went a little bit like this, if a homosexual doesn't repent of their sinful lifestyle and theologically repentance precedes faith in Christ, then can they be saved? Well, let me submit this to you based on Holy Scripture. What is a repentant heart? Since no man knows every sin, and let's just clump commission and omission, that's the ones we know, the ones we don't know about in our lives. We don't know every sin. How could we? It's impossible for him to repent from every sin. God saves the willing, the humble, the repentant. It's true. However, much of our conviction regarding sin arrives after salvation as we grow in the grace and knowledge of God. How many people can raise their hand right now and say, every sin that you knew about before you were saved, um, or you've never, you've never learned of another sin since you've been saved? <laughs> Obviously, DJ's like, <laughs> What are we doing here? What, what, are, we gonna, what are we doing here? We're going to alienate an entire category of sin and I'm not saying this person was doing this it just was a 
you know, a, a sort of a theological exercise that we went through. So what is a repentant heart? Because God sees the heart, and that's what he's looking for. Since no man knows every sin, commission, or omission combined, it's impossible for him to repent from every sin. God saves the willing, the humble, the repentant. You can have a repentant heart, in other words, and not know about every sin, obviously. However, much of our conviction regarding sin arrives after salvation, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of God. So probably the simplest way to explain what the Spirit's getting at here is by considering your own life. So do it. Consider your own life, and right now, consider your own conversion. If you can remember, whatever you can remember about it. Was there at least one sin that you weren't repentant of before you were saved? That you now are, let's say? At least one? I mean, if you only say there's one, you're cuckoo, but... Was there at least one? Stated differently, was there at least one sin you kept on committing without any real conviction about it, even after you were saved? At least one? Everybody's laughing. It's okay to laugh, because I already know you're all sinners. Everybody here knows you're a sinner, so go ahead. (laughs) And if you can't come up with the answer, allow me to give it to you. The answer is yes. If that's the case, then shall I assume that you're not saved since you refuse to repent of said sin? May it never be. May it never be. You may be too darn weak. You may have seen the scripture and you're too darn weak, which means you don't have what? Faith yet. But God sees your heart. And says, I, you know, I need a Savior. You tell me it's wrong, I don't even see it yet. I need a Savior, though. This I know, this I'm convinced of. And he'll save that person. I'm convinced of that. And then maybe later on they repent of it. Maybe a homosexual does get saved, and then they figure out, and God convicts them and gives them the right faith. And at that point, they leave the lifestyle, like Jesus said. Go and sin no more. But that's between them and the Lord. Here's where Satan, the genius, is able to trip us up. Even well-intentioned disciples up here on the board, and I don't mind picking on theology because it's man-made. It has its reasons, it has its purpose, which is cool, but it's still man-made. And there are limitations of everything that is man-made. Theology is a man-made construct. That's why there's so many of them. Go in my office, go to my library in the back. You'll get volumes of this guy, and then volumes of that guy, and then volumes of this guy. And their theology is different, believe it or not. (laughs) Why? Because it's man-made. You want pure theology? You ready? This is tough. You ready? There it is. Amen? This is pure theology. You want theology proper? This is it. Deuteronomy 4.2, do not add or subtract from the Word of God. Now, while theology has its uses, I mean, they're good teaching vehicles, devices that even I use, which is good, but you have to be cautious. While theology has its uses, it sometimes produces errant conclusions if and when it's drawn out too far. We just noted a situation regarding a humble, presumably humble, from what I was told, homosexual. Strictly speaking, That's an oxymoron. I'll let you deal with that in your own soul. But only to a person who has faith in the scripture that condemns it. If we draw theology out too far, we run the risk of concluding that certain sins result in an unsavable condition. Well, a person must repent, you know, before they have saving faith. Well, What if they don't know that that sin is a sin? That they haven't been convicted of it yet? Are we supposed to wait until they're totally convicted of every sin? 
When does that happen? Kind of a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? So if we draw theology out too far, we run the risk of concluding that certain sins result in an unsavable condition when we know from Holy Scripture that there's only one sin that precludes a person from being saved. That, of course, is the sin of unbelief. We spent a year and a half on that puppy. Something we noted in greater detail not so long ago was this, Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. That's the sin of unbelief. That one you can't get away with. Some may know that even after they are saved, they will most likely consider or continue in a certain sin due to weakness. And that weakness, while it produces sinful thoughts and behavior, was known by God when he saved you. After all, weakness is really just another name for a lack of faith. Isn't it? You're weak because you lack faith. That's what the Bible tells us about our weaknesses. The underlying lie, however, from the kingdom of darkness, the so-called bad presupposition regarding repentance that can get an evangelist in trouble is that repentance at salvation must somehow include, I don't know, every possible sin? But that's not true, nor could it ever be, nor was it ever presupposed by the Savior himself while he went about evangelizing. Did he ever, did you, is that in scripture? Did he ever say, go away and come back when you have no more sin? <clears throat> no. He said, I came to save sinners. And he was talking about people who realized they're sinners. People know that they were stuck in the rut of sin and had nowhere else to go. Hopeless, helpless, desperate. Desperately depraved. And, and all God was looking for is, do you get it? Do you understand that you're depraved? All specifics aside, do you understand that you're depraved? That you need a Savior? Do you? And the humble heart says, I do. He can work with that. So it's interesting because it doesn't take you too long to see that Jesus Christ himself, the Savior, was out saving tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, eating with them, dining with them. And he said, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. I didn't even come here to judge. I came to save. So, back to Jesus. <clears throat> he calls every sheep by name, knowing full well that they don't understand everything about their own sins even. God saves us based on the merits of His Son. God saves us based on the merits of His Son. He gives us His Son's righteousness, and then He loves us for it. So much so that we are eternally bound to Him through His Son. And this is something that came up during the past couple of lessons. Go to Romans 8.38. Romans 8.38 <clears throat> Romans 8.38. You can't deliver yourself from sin. That's the whole point. Romans 8.38. <clears throat> For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And not only does the first person of the Godhead, as we just noted, ensure our saving faith never fails. In other words, if you're saved, you're not going to be lost. All three persons of the Godhead, 
are involved in keeping you saved. So not only does the first person of the Godhead ensure a saving faith never fails, but also the second person up here on the board. <clears throat> John 18, 9, To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. That's the great shepherd. And also the third person, the Holy Spirit, whom believers are said to be sealed with. Go to Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 1.13. In other words, the Godhead's not letting you go. And oh, by the way, they signed you up and they grabbed hold of you while you were still a sinner. Huh. Ephesians 1.13. <clears throat> In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Up here on the board, on saving faith, remember all three persons of the Godhead hold we believers so tightly that it is impossible for our faith to fail. Romans 8, 38-39, John 18, 9, Ephesians 1, 13, and of course, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says you'll never be tempted beyond what you can handle. I taught this concept from the pulpit and through a blog not too long ago, <clears throat> and it's a tremendously edifying principle in Scripture that while faith can be tested, something we see frequently with the apostles, saving faith specifically can never be lost once obtained from God not because we somehow want it so badly. But how about this, what we just noted? It's because the Godhead won't allow it. The Godhead won't allow it. You, you cannot be lost if you're saved. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? You, you cannot be lost. Your faith in Christ will never fail. And you know what? Satan hates me for speaking these truths to you, for shedding light on the truth about saving faith. He wants us to tell others they are somehow unsavable because of legalistic theology or theology that's been drawn out too far. He wants us to tell, tell people that they're unsavable or at least insinuate it. Well, you're a homosexual and you've got to repent to be saved. So unless you repent of homosexuality, you, I, I'm not going to say it. Seriously? That doesn't sound like Jesus Christ at all, the author and perfecter of our faith. That doesn't sound like Jesus Christ at all. Satan wants us to, well, he wants to make us stumble, and he wants us to make others stumble along the way. Satan wants to divert our attention from the fullness of grace and truth that is Christ himself. And I was reflecting on this um, as I was preparing this lesson. And I got to thinking, you know, this idea of diversion that's been coming up from the pulpit. I mean, how does Satan do this thing? How does he divert our attention? What are some of the ways that Satan does this thing? So I want to give you some food for thought that is basically as ancient as the apostles that we've been studying. But first I want to give you some perspective, some ancient perspective as well from Solomon. Go to Ecclesiastes 1.1. Ecclesiastes 1.1. There's a reason why we can go back. There's, so, uh, there's such a... There's a reason why the Bible is so beautiful and so applicable even today. Well, what did Solomon say? Ecclesiastes 1.1. Our problems, they're not novel. I mean, your buddy who's a homosexual is not the first homosexual in history. There's been a lot of them. Just saying. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say this. I'm sure God saved a lot of them. I don't know. I'm assuming. But that's between them and the Lord. I'm not about to say someone's unsavable because they have some sort of a sin. Not when I'm a ridiculous sinner myself. 
Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. That's kind of funny, huh? Anyways. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. So here's a few diversions that we can all relate to that were prevalent during the lives of the ancient folks like the apostles that we've been studying. And you can chew on these, um, but these are probably the ones that I see the most in my own personal walk. Uh, most of you probably um, concur, at least partly. If you've got any other cool ones, let me know. Email me. Uh, I'll put them up here on Sunday. And I'll be like, is that you? Because it gives me like the bu better bug eyes, right? Maybe some corner cases I'm not thinking of. But I know that first one's the big one. Right out of the gate. That takes out, I would say, the majority of problems. The majority of diversions. So-called love. Worldly love. Counterfeit love. Everybody wants love, but everybody's looking in all the wrong places, you see. And what would Jesus have said? He would say what I'm saying right now. Leave that behind. Leave it behind. If you really love that person, honestly, if you really cared about that person, you know what you would do for them? You'd evangelize them. But you don't really love them. You love you. And it's about you. And it's always about you. It's always been about you. So you're not interested in evangelizing them. You just want to use them for what's good for you to satisfy your version of love. That's a diversion. That's a fleshly issue. So worldly love has got to be the biggest diversion of all. Of all. And then finances are pretty close especially in America. Uh, reputation's a big one. A lot of people get pretty puffed up or, or upset when their reputation is somehow tarnished. Who cares? Honest to goodness, what, who, what do you care about your reputation in this world? Other than what the Bible says, just be of good, rep, good enough reputation to evangelize people. That's what I have to worry about. Be in good standing with the community. In other words, I can't go down to the bar after and start some brawls. <laughs> And a few other things, all right. <laughs> who cares? But I don't care. I really, you know, who cares? You, you've been at this for any length of time. You already lost your reputation. No one's telling you. <laughs> but you did. <laughs> and then death. How about yours and others? I mean, geez, everybody's so afraid of death. Well, other people, you know, who, instead of trying to keep Aunt Myrtle alive, evangelize her so she can live forever. How about that? I'm serious. Instead of worrying about keeping her, whatever you're doing, life support or whatever it is you're doing with her, how about evangelizing her? I mean, you're keeping her alive for what? The same destiny? I'm serious. Like, what are you worried about? You, oh, you're not going to fit everything into your little piddly life? So you're going to live large? Like Billy Joel? Right? What are you going to do? Anyways, you know what I'm saying. These are just common diversions, and Satan uses them all over the place. So those are just a few of the diversions as food for thought. 
One last analogy, if you're not sick of them already. Um, too bad. Before we finish this review, does everybody know what these things are? Bill's like, that looks like a flat iron on a strap. <laughs> Do I iron like this? Whoop, Lois. <laughs> Do I heat that thing up? <laughs> you put a phone in there in many cases. They're basically what they call virtual reality goggles. So they strap around your eyes. Imagine this. You strap around your eyes, and you're basically immersed in whatever they're showing you. And you turn, and things like move. It's virtual reality. So we call them virtual reality goggles, and they're like the hottest thing now. I recently saw a video of a guy wearing virtual reality glasses immersed in a fighting game. And he, like, simultaneously kicked and punched at the same time and literally, in public, fell flat on his face. Like, in the store. It's foolish, right? Then I saw another, uh, an older woman, a video screaming. She had these on, she screamed and then literally fell right out of her office chair onto the floor because she was on a roller coaster, a virtual roller coaster. Now, neither of these situations were real, but there was enough trickery to the human senses that these people were convinced in the moment to the point where they literally caused themselves harm. They were tricked enough to the point in the moment where they literally caused themselves harm. This reminds me of the person, reminds me of a lot of people, a lot of things we do. But this, for whatever reason, was making me think about a person who stresses out over everything. Even though everything is a phantom influence. It's just virtual reality. Most things people stress out over never actually transpire. I would say high 90% of the things that people are wigged out over actually never happen. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It's never going to happen, haven't you? Like, just do the math. You've been worrying for, for, for 40 years and like one half of 1% of the things you've worried about have actually happened. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, let's shoot for the 995 you might live a happier life, I'm just saying. But you see, Satan wants you to focus on that one half of 1%. Wants you to worry about Aunt Myrtle staying alive. Wants you to worry about, will I ever find love? Wants you to worry about things that you shouldn't be worrying about. Those are phantom influences. Satan uses this kind of trickery to fool even the most mature best-intentioned believers. But it's fair to say, based on Scripture, that the less mature suffer more severely. But here's the downer. As soon as we fall for his schemes, we lose out on freedom, peace, happiness, contentment, etc. So concentrate. I can't believe I'm almost out of I'm coming up on the close of class. Concentrate. <clears throat> as soon as we fall for his schemes... We lose out. Amen? It's literally, it's a one-to-one -one correspondence. You never win when you fall for a phantom influence. You never win when you buy a lie from the kingdom of darkness. You never win. The big one is like the one we were just talking about. What about the lie that you're unsavable because you're living a life of some kind of sin? Are you serious? You're unsavable? When, when did that ever happen? That doesn't mean you're not an arrogant jerk and you never repent. That's a different story. But far be it, you buy some lie that you're unsavable. Remember what the apostles said? Then who can be saved? And what did Jesus say? With God, all things are possible. God can save whoever he wants based on what he sees in their heart. doesn't say except, you know, if they're carrying around this sin or that sin or this sin. So concentrate. If we fall for those things that Satan wants us to fall for, we lose freedom. Sin is designed to create ties that bind us to worldly things. 
It is designed to rob us of the freedom that Christ has afforded every believer. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. That's Galatians 5.1. That's how you lose freedom. You want to go back to slavery? Sin. Sin is designed to create ties that bind us to worldly things. It is designed to rob us of the freedom that Christ has afforded every believer. Conversely, freedom. Freedom exists in those moments when we lose our ties to the world and cling solely to Christ. I can't tell you how many people have, thankfully, and I appreciate it because it's encouraging, have intimated to me over the past year or so the freedom they've experienced. Just sort of, you know, cutting ties to the world. Some call it simplifying. I know DJ and I talk about that a lot. Scott and I talk about it a lot. Some call it simplifying. Whatever you want to call it, cut the ties. Whatever's holding you back, whatever's keeping you in sin, whatever that diversion is, love, finances, reputation, whatever else I had on that list and more, whatever that thing is, sever it. What did Jesus say? If the eye's bad, throw it out. Seriously. If it's no good, get rid of it. But, but no. Jesus said, go and sin no more. Freedom exists in those moments when we lose our ties to the world by, and cling solely to Christ. And, um, yeah, I think, I, I think I'll end here. Yeah, I think I'm going to end here. It's a, little, it's a little shy of our time, but I think it's appropriate. This is something I received from one of your fellow congregants uh, recently. Hold on a second. Ugh. Here's the problem. To me, this is a victory. When I hear one of you speak this way, it's a victory for me. So, not for me, you know what I mean. You're my joy and my crown, right? So. so I found this very encouraging. And this was something that, you know, this, this person's come a long way. And uh, it's just good to see. So I'll read it with you. Finding freedom. I'm really starting to understand how trust in Christ, his sovereignty his love for us, his tremendous power, and his promises are the key to peace. Now, this is a person who has struggled with peace, who didn't always have this kind of peace. Do you understand? The peace that Christ himself said, my peace I give to who? You. Why? I love you. I don't want you to think this way anymore. I don't want you to be in bondage anymore. I want you to be delivered. Galatians 5.1. I died on the cross to deliver you. I don't want you to go that way anymore. I know you're gonna. I know your flesh is gonna wanna. I know you have all these ties that you gotta cut. I get it. But I saved you despite those things, didn't I? I did. I'm really starting to understand how trusting Christ, uh, this is such a pregnant statement, his sovereignty, his love for us, his tremendous power, and his promises are the key to peace. Amen. Amen? Yeah. Now, this is funny. Why would we ever forsake, distrust, or deny the most loving and powerful being in the universe? Duh. <laughs> Seriously, why would we? We do. Because Satan has our flesh programmed to a certain degree. That jackass needs to be controlled by right thinking. <laughs> it's true. What's the Bible say? Resist the devil and he'll what? Flee from you. Don't try to wrangle with him. Resist him. Turn your back on him. You know what you do when you, oh, you know how that is. Turn your back on someone arrogant. Ooh, do they get mad. Thank God for his grace in Jesus who made it possible. Isn't that awesome? And if you knew this person and you knew the heart that this was coming from, you'd be overwhelmed like I am right now. 
awesome. To me, that's the grace of God come alive. And we should all, we should all be encouraged by that. Why? Because, you know what, if, if one of the apostles was here, maybe they would say the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun, right? This kind of deliverance is what God does with those, with his children, with those he loves. How dare we ever say someone's unsavable and can't join in this thing? <laughs> Don't you want everybody to be like this person? Isn't everybody in our country just flat out miserable? Nowadays, everybody's complaining about one thing or another. If it's not Donald Trump, it's something else. It's always something. It's like, stop. Nobody wants to talk about the real problem. The real the elephant is, is Jesus Christ. Nobody wants to talk about Jesus Christ. Everybody wants to talk about the symptoms. It's really simple. I don't know. This person has um, real conviction. I'm going to give you one more thing, only because it makes me think of this person. <clears throat> because this person has been through a lot of pain and suffering in their life. Like all of us. We've all been. Anybody want to say they haven't been through pain and suffering in their life? Come on. But I'll leave you with this, I guess. And you can look up the scripture on your own. True conviction passes through real discomfort. True conviction passes through real discomfort. Romans 5, 3 to 5, James 1, 2 to 4, 5, 11, 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9. It's true. You want that kind of conviction in your life? You want to find peace that way and be convinced of it? And stop running on borrowed conviction from pastors and others, whoever, people you might respect and care about? then you got to kind of push through. you got to go through these uncomfortable lessons even, these uncomfortable times in your life where you hit rock bottom, you get back up, and you hit rock bottom, you get back up, and you dust yourself off, and you say, God, what's going on? You get, and he's like, smacks you down again, you get back up. And then you have true conviction, just like Scripture says. Read that Scripture when you go home. That's not Pastor Ed waxing poetic or trying to finish strong. <laughs> it's literally Scripture. <laughs> It was there. I wasn't even going to read it, but then I saw it. I'm like, oh, I should probably give him that, too. True conviction passes through real discomfort. Amen? Wow, it's bards. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful privilege to gather together as family, to laugh and cry together, to break bread together in the most precious word. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity, for the peace and quiet to do it, for the energy to do it, for the air to breathe while we're doing it. We ask for this same strength and tenacity and perseverance as we go out and spread the gospel to a world that needs it so desperately, Father. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray.